Hey everyone, Ryan here for another episode of Week Notes, the podcast by Instill. This episode was recorded before Easter and features Neil and Dylan. This one's mostly about learning. There'll be one more episode to come before we wrap up season two. I hope to get a third run of episodes released in May and June. Let's just get to it. Yeah, I think I tried to use Zoom to record and it just totally went tits up. So I have been using QuickTime Player because when I study Korean these days, I record myself speaking to listen to it back and hear how atrocious I am at pronouncing. So I'm really good at QuickTime, so that shouldn't go wrong. And how's your Korean? Do you learn it through Duolingo or have you got like a formal lesson for it? I mean, this is podcast worthy here, like, but... Uh... <laughs> of course, that's why I'm asking. So was it two years ago? I took like a career break and went and lived in Korea for a few months as part of that because you need to kind of have a task as well because I'm very a uh, task oriented kind of person. I did a semester in university studying and I've got, what, four textbooks from then. Still not very good at it because it's, I think it's rated as like one of the, the most difficult languages to learn as an English speaker. So I don't speak any other languages. Like I spoke or learned French in school and got like a D or something. So I'm terrible at second languages. So I really put myself one in hard mode <laughs> and two, don't really have any other reference to go on. But yeah, it's fun. Well, you've got to pick a reasonable challenge. If the day job's too easy. You, you've exactly. got to pick something that's a bit more difficult. Program is too easy. Yeah. And Korean's a sensible choice or totally yeah. random? Or it's a, The reason why I started learning it is a friend of mine who was living with at the time just wanted to go on holiday somewhere exotic. So he said, why don't we just go to Korea? I was like, all right, fair enough. And then I was like, I wonder what their language is like. Because I've seen it before and I always liked, like Hangul is the script. And I always liked Hangul because there's something about it that's very like, structurally signed it, it feels like you should be able to understand it when you look at it because yeah. it's the only written language that was totally man-made so to speak it wasn't organically made from bits and pieces they sat down and they defined everything at once it's a, a scholarly created language so it has that weird easy to understand structure to it and that always appealed to me when i saw it and i was like all right i'm gonna just try and learn to speak it and then i spent like a few months before we went and i could read it fine because reading is really easy but speaking it's obviously impossible and it worked out really useful because when you leave like the main city, which is Seoul, English starts to fade away and everything turns to Hangul. So the friend I was with was getting really paranoid. He's like, where are we going? I don't read anything. And we're like on the bus. I'm like, uh, it's coming up. I can see it there. It's coming up. He's like, what do you mean? I can't see it. And he was getting really worried. <laughs> so it's quite interesting. Yeah. But it's opened my eyes to any time I go anywhere. Like if I ever go to Taiwan, Japan or something, spend some time and learn to at least be able to read. You don't need to understand what it says, but try and learn to read. The Japan's nearly impossible because of kanji, but that's another argument. In most places around the world, if they've got a non-Latin alphabet, they'll put the English spelling or the Latin spellings in, whereas yeah. in Japan, that just doesn't happen anywhere. So I was in Japan, funny enough, and I did try and learn some some of the script before I went. Though it was quite difficult because they have three scripts. They have katakana, which is for foreign words. They have uh, hiragana, which is for... Japanese words and those are more like an alphabet and then they've kanji which is the one that you probably most likely see which looks like Chinese so they've all three of those so even getting to learn the two alphabetic languages which is the easiest entry it's very difficult because you have to learn so many characters and it's very difficult so I only got like halfway through doing that before I went and then when I got there in Tokyo it was fine because you'd expect the main city there's gonna be a lot of English around the place that's as you said the, the main Latin language they would use but outside of Tokyo, even Osaka and Kyoto, which are two other major cities, there's 
very little sometimes and it was very difficult to get train tickets and stuff because it's all just in kanji all the buses kanji and you're just there's no way you can guess what it is it's it's very interesting utterly foreign i guess yeah utterly foreign excites some people yeah it was fun but also very isolating it's like a nice practice before covid i guess (laughs) (laughs) because it is very isolating quite an interesting place for sure Dylan, do you speak Japanese or Korean? No, none of them. I um, actually have an A-level in Spanish, so it was actually my strongest A-level. Not that I've spoken any since, really, but I remember the oral exams were always quite nerve-wracking. You'd go in, and there would be a certain amount that you knew roughly what they were going to ask. Then yeah. they would always throw you like, a curveball question at the end, like, oh, what do you think about American politics, or just something completely <laughs> random. I couldn't even answer that in English, never mind Spanish. Yeah, I stopped languages 25 years ago, and there were still... German phrases that pop into my head because yeah. I spent two years learning them at school. And it's so annoying because you feel like you know the language, but you've really no idea. You've just kind of got how to ask for directions to the train station. And that's about it. So during lockdown, I have spent 10 minutes every night on Geolingo teaching myself Irish. When the census form came around, I had a debate in my head as to whether or not I could tick the box <laughs> for actually understanding any Irish because I've done it for 200 odd days in a row. And I said yes, even though I probably couldn't how do you find duolingo for learning language i tried to learn german in it years ago and really struggled to retain anything like i did it every day and i really struggled i don't think it works for me personally but i think if you stick with it things do go in i think i've got a better sense of how to pronounce irish words now that i didn't have before and i've got a, a bit of an understanding of the syntax of how it's spoken so i could probably figure out some stuff but it's geolingo is weird what, what do you want to know whenever you're learning a language it's like well how do you introduce yourself or how do you ask somebody what is your name that doesn't come until yes, you're well yes. through it I, I noticed that as well it's an obsession with bread and people and not just survival it feels like it'd be better if they just taught you how to survive and then they teach you all the other stuff afterwards yeah and then there's rules to language so languages are logical in a sense yeah. mostly i remember sitting in french going je suis to a il a and that you know that rhythm of learning the rules of the verbs duolingo doesn't teach you any rules at all it just teaches no. you words so you've got to guess you've got to infer the rules from having learned a number of words i don't know whether that's better but i feel like it's slow compared to what I could have done if I'd done it properly. My girlfriend, she's Korean, and she can speak English probably better than I can, but she can also speak Spanish, a wee bit of Chinese, a wee bit of Japanese and stuff. And her way of learning is very much that organic way where you don't really think about it, just speak it and keep doing it and don't think and just do, basically. I can't do that. I think it's partly being a software engineer. I have to understand why. And I think that's partly why I did so badly at French back in the day, because the teacher never told you why. They just said, do it. Yeah. And my head, I was like, well, if you don't tell me why I need to do it, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> so I just didn't do it. Yeah. There's a set number of rules. And if I learn the rules, then I can make anything up as I go along. Exactly. And that's what I did with Korean. But the problem with that is then you, you get overwhelmed by the rules because the more rules you learn, the more you're just trying to construct the perfect sentence in your head and you're no longer speaking. You're just being a computer, basically, getting like the perfect output. Yeah. And it, it can really slow you down. And it's something I think I've come to realize. I still really enjoy the grammar and the structure and all that kind of stuff. It's still like the most enjoyable thing to me. But from a pure functional point of view, I realize that's not the right way to learn. I think Duolingo actually, if you stop caring about grammar and stop caring about structure, Duolingo is a better tool. But if you care deeply about that stuff, which as I said, as a software engineer, it's very hard to avoid. It's a really good tool. Yeah. 
if you were to apply that concept to programming and learning how to program, do you need to know the rules of programming or do you just need to learn to do it? What's the best way to learn? I would say it's a combination of both. So programming is not like a lot of other subjects where you can just sit down and memorize things and then you know it. I always find at university they're good at teaching you what is a class, what is a function. But you need to actually sit down and write it yourself to understand it properly. It's like maths almost programming. You have to just it's repetition, repetition, repetition all the time to actually get it into your head more than actually sitting down and learning rules and such. I'm training on Monday with people who have zero programming experience. So I've got a, like a handful of people with business degrees. They might have done spreadsheets and that's about as close to programming as they've gotten. It's a really interesting thing. It's like, where do you start? If you're going to introduce somebody to the idea of programming stuff, their end goal is to build a React application, but they've never used programming languages before. Where do you start? Technically, they have exceptionally good fundamentals in functional programming because spreadsheets are the most popular functional programming framework. <laughs> so if you start from there, it should be all right, right? No, yeah, it's a, maybe. I imagine it's a very daunting task. And the, the added problem is one size doesn't fit all either. Whenever you're talking with people with completely different backgrounds, but the end goal has to be the same. You can't just apply one formula to it. And that's, I guess, that's why you're the professional trainer, you know. From your observations, though, did you see there was a trend of something that worked more successfully than other things? Since lockdown started, I have accelerated my reading around this stuff to try and figure out how do people learn best? Because when you're in a classroom, you can see whether people get it or not. Because there's like a look in their eye, you go, oh, you're confused. And so there's an opportunity to go back over it again or to, to ask those questions to steer the, the lesson a little bit. That's more difficult when you're working remotely, yeah. as I'm sure you both know. So you do need to think about the techniques of learning. And so it, it turns out it's really easy to be just observing. Even if, if the teacher thinks it's an active experience, it's still possible to be passive and therefore not to learn anything. So it's fun and games. So yeah, Dylan, how have you found learning working remotely starting a new job from your bedroom yeah I, it's been okay for me to be honest i suppose i have nothing to compare it to i've never worked in an office doing programming obviously i've worked in jobs around people before but never doing this particular thing so i find it okay i think everyone here is very helpful if you ever need anything they're always happy to jump on a call with you for five ten minutes and just work through something even i've noticed people that aren't even on my particular team at the time but if they have experience in what i'm struggling with we'll just hop on give me a hand so it's been good that way i'm the type of person that could probably be alone a lot of the time and be quite content although i think working from home the past sort of seven months or so has made me realize actually i would prefer to be in an office and just have that social interaction and the, the banter that sort of comes with that so i think a lot of people are missing it's not so much the work in the office they're missing but it's the stuff that goes along with it it's that i've got a problem somebody else has a solution and then all of a sudden you've got 10 people standing around your computer pointing out where you've done it wrong <laughs> does that happen at instill yeah i guess it does no no it's 10 people standing around pointing out what you did right because we're such a positive <laughs> environment <laughs> no that for sure happens i think personally for me the biggest loss is just knowing what other teams are up to that's the most noticeable thing you just lose touch with everyone that's not in your media team and even people in your team, you start to lose touch. And I guess it comes back to that company culture kind of moves and it's always a moving window. Mm. And I feel like 
because it's been so long since we've all worked in the office, the culture has changed and we've lost maybe parts of the culture that was very appealing. I know you've probably seen this whenever you're training people too. It's almost more daunting to ask for help over Slack because you can't physically see what that person's doing. You don't know how busy they are. So sometimes I'll message someone and feel like it almost burdening them because I can't see, oh, they could be like knee deep in a problem right now and then they just get a PM for me and it distracts them completely. So I think whenever you're in the office, you can see, okay, they're busy. Don't disturb them. You can't really do that when you're working from home. Yeah, that's true. I think people are, certainly in the training courses, getting people to respond can be really difficult. And so it's easy to then just go, you're not asking questions. So therefore I assume you know how to do it or what to do. And actually they need help, but they don't have the confidence to ask for it. I think that's a problem. There are techniques to work around it. Imagine if we didn't have Slack and you needed to get some help from somebody uh, and you're working remotely. How would you do it? You'd have to email, but who would you email? Slack's easy because it's low friction, whereas email introduces that degree of friction and forces you to change the way you work things or even just pick up the phone and call somebody. When was the last time you did that? I would rather not get called, but I did work with a previous company and they were based over in Canada and it was a lot more about emails there's very little slack so i know that pain i think especially from a corporate person expects a bit more formality where they would add a bit more formality to an email than they would like a call or slack so it ends up just adding that extra burden of you have to be careful what you write and stuff like that well slack generally you can be a bit more fast and loose and then not necessarily expect the result as quicker because it's async but they also had a culture of picking up the phone and calling people as you suggested and that was very frustrating (laughs) so i don't like that approach at all but slack is definitely preferred but i totally feel your pain on asking questions to people because I recall when I started at Instill, it was very hard because everyone had their headphones on, were heads down working, and it was very hard to go over and ask a question, especially because the office was dead silent. So you breathe and people hear it. So asking a question and you feel it's a stupid question in your head was very daunting. So I totally get that feeling. It's one of those things. No question's a stupid question. It was one of the earlier episodes where the idea that actually working remotely and distributed working has improved things because you can just start up a call in your team Slack channel and anybody who's available can jump on, which means that the friction of getting into a conversation with somebody has been reduced. Have you found that actually that sort of uh, approach to to teaming and pairing has been pretty smooth? Yeah, we do that quite a lot. You just fire up a Slack call and you'll just say, look, I'm struggling with this. If anyone's free, you can jump on. If not, it's no worries. And that People are almost more keen to jump on to a group call than they would be if you were like PMing them or ringing them specifically. Yeah, that's been really good actually, just getting a lot of people jumping onto your problem and then it saves you a little time because three or four sets of eyes looking at it, probably solve it in five, ten minutes compared to the two hours you were going to spend, you know, going around in circles. Yeah, I need opportunities to get onto those calls because that's where I learn about how people are doing stuff. You're welcome to join in on our calls and listen if you want. I probably should. Yeah, me and Ian were actually having a conversation earlier too. He was like, I jumped on a call to help him out with something. He was like, I changed my mind again. I hate React today. I hate React today. <laughs> and I was like, like if people ask me would I like React, I would probably say yeah. And I was like, I'm starting to think it's more of a Stockholm Syndrome type thing now. I just have to like it. But it's like I love React whenever I'm writing it and I hate it whenever I'm trying to debug it. Well, that's code in general. Code is glorious to write, but it is the biggest pain in the ass to read. It's a completely different part of your brain that you use when you read code compared to writing it. So it's just, you're a different person effectively when you're reading or writing. Maybe we need better tools. 
<laughs> more tools to solve the problem. <laughs> more tools. Yeah. I was reading today about somebody and they were saying how proud they were of themselves because they said, I'm not really a very good programmer, but I'm really good at debugging. They were able to find a, a problem in a 300 deep nested React application, 300 nested That's React insane. component application. Uh, so they narrowed down the issue from 30,000 lines of code to 300 or something. My first thought with that was like 300 nested components in React. Is that reasonable? Because I've never got anywhere near that in any React app that I've built. But then again, I'm just hello world and then move on. But yeah, is that why it's so difficult? Because of the, the number of nested components typically? Yeah, I think that's what we struggle with the most is like that state hierarchy. So you might be debugging a component that's five levels deep, but the state is managed two levels above that or something wacky, especially trying to use like Chrome debugger. So if you put a breakpoint in, in the sources in Chrome debugger, because React refreshes that, that amount of time with the components re-render, you're like clicking five or six times just to get past one breakpoint. It'll keep re-rendering on the same breakpoint over and over and over again. I have never used the the breakpoint tools for react i think that which sounds like a <laughs> an awful experience but that kind of nested issue is generally something like redux tries to solve that problem where you can flatten your components and make it more of a flat structure the component has the state itself it, it takes a state from some kind of central store and that makes that stuff easier because when i first used react i didn't use redux and it did turn into that kind of prop tunneling thing as it's called where yeah. you take a top level component which kind of holds all the information and it sends it down to these other ones and they send it down to the ones and that is an absolute nightmare and if you try and use that it's just going to cause you pain so yeah. redux is a solution to that but also the hooks stuff is potentially a solution that we used in the past where you can actually store state at a top level and then every child under that can access it whenever they want using a hook if you have like multiple components on your app, which are the same thing, but they all want to store a different state, they can all have this kind of context that's independent. And then you don't even need to use something as heavy as Redux and you can avoid prop tunneling. But it's not a massively well-known feature. That's what we've actually been using at the start. All of our state was still living inside the components. Yeah. But because a lot of our basic components were using the same sort of state logic, we pulled them out into like custom hooks. So you can write actually your own hooks in React and then create multiple instances of the same state for different components so it's self-managed that way the custom hook stuff is really powerful where you can compose things and you're effectively just creating a really nice function but the, the context thing's slightly different so it's if you ever use like react router or something like that it's kind of where this thing where you wrap components in a component that's not rendered on the screen and then all the childs live within that and they can then share context with that top level component directly rather than indirectly through prop tunneling and in that way, you can centralize your state and make it a bit more convenient. Yeah. It's not ideal all the time because there's a wee bit of ceremony around it. But then that kind of store can be provided via hook. I think that's what we're going to do as part of our code cleanup because we're wrapping up over the next few weeks. But yeah, we're basically using use state and callbacks everywhere, which even in itself is still not great. But we find there's that use, use reducer hook, which is like Redux, but uh, yeah. like its own hook form. So. I think we're going to have a look at that next and see if we can clean up any of the code that if way. If you're having issues with hooks, it might be worth asking some of my team because we all love hooks. So we'd probably be able to help out with that. See, this is the kind of cross-team help that you don't get. Exactly. Remote. I was going to say it sounds like a, a blog post might be bringing about this fancy context stuff. It was really useful in the other app we were doing because we basically had these two canvas screens and they had 
shapes within them. So initially we're like, okay, store this in Redux, but then you have to think of a hierarchy. Okay, you need to store this screen and this screen and they have to be named and it has to be within a formal object. And that's quite difficult because if you want to add a third one, which is the plan, or a fourth one dynamically, how do you do that in an easy way that Redux is kind of like? looked into this thing where you could use context so each of those canvas have their own context and they know where their own shapes are they know where the mouse pointer is that kind of stuff and then they're completely isolated and they're not part of state either so you don't really need to think about it and it worked really really well for that cool you've, you've lost me though i'm now confused you've surpassed my knowledge and moved into areas that i don't understand yeah, it's not too scary when you see it, but I'm just bad at explaining it, probably. But. No, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think I'm just a bad learner, so <laughs> I need to practice it for myself. You need to go do it. Exactly. Come back to the original point. 